Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. And I'm Denny. Denny, today we're talking about a topic that should be really boring, but it's not. Normally, the last thing I want to talk about is insurance, but it's suddenly become very interesting. Insurance is at an intersection of a few important topics, corporate America and free enterprise, climate change, government regulation, and the all-American dream of home ownership, which seems to be steadily slipping away for many. We've all noticed that climate change is making natural disasters such as hurricanes and wildfires and flooding more frequent and severe. This is making the insurance business more risky. That along with soaring construction costs is putting financial pressure on the entire industry and home prices, not to mention the dream of home ownership. Recently, California's insurance market was rocked by announcements from the four biggest insurers, State Farm, Allstate, Farmers, and AIG, saying they would stop sales of new homeowner insurance policies in California. Florida is facing the exact same problem. Well, you're right. Insurance seems to me to be the least interesting topic that we could pick, <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of at the forefront of things right now, and it's certainly caught my attention. Like you, I have a homeowner's policy. Every year I get a notification that says it's going to go up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe a good way to start this conversation is let's just chat a little bit about insurance in general, because it's something that I have studiously ignored as much as possible in my life. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have probably the common man's understanding of insurance, and it might be useful to just lay a little groundwork. So we're all starting from the same point. First point to make, insurance is just a risk mitigation strategy. That's all it is. A way to lessen exposure to some sort of financial loss, mostly. What it always felt like to me was a bet in which I was putting money on the table saying, I bet something terrible happens to me. And you're saying, nah, we don't think so. Well, that's really what it comes down to. I'm spending money to protect myself from some sort of tragedy. And you know what? You can insure just about anything. You can insure your business. You can insure a car or a home. Or you can buy insurance for a ship from Lloyd's of London. Pretty much anything physical that might be lost, you can insure. You can also insure an idea. If you're a farmer, you can insure your crop against some sort of weather loss, typically. You can insure a life, your own, a family member, or even a business partner. There are really only a few things you cannot get insurance for. And I'll mention them, but I don't want to get into it because they're sort of these esoteric things. You can't insure a reputation. And the only thing I can think of that comes to mind for that would be if General Motors has a, a recall for, I don't know, 300,000 cars, their reputation suffers. Well, you can't buy an insurance policy to cover that reputation. The other thing that makes sense to me that you cannot insure for is a regulatory risk. If you're in a business and a new law is passed that impacts your business that costs you money, you can't really buy insurance that says, if a new law is passed and I lose money, I can stake a claim. So there's a couple of other things. There's trade secrets, there's uh, risk around pandemics, those kinds of things. But mostly, if you can think about it, if you can point to it, you can insure it. We all know in, in life insurance policies, uh, everybody, including the social security system, uses these actuarial tables that gives them a sense of how long you expect to live, and they use that to rate how much you're going to pay for life insurance. Car insurance sort of works the same way. It's based on a number of data-driven points. And in fact, that's something I should emphasize, that the insurance business is a data-driven business. They don't just make stuff up. Everything they do 
to determine rates is based on typically historical facts about when bad things have happened. Car insurance, your location has something to do with it. Certainly your driving record would, the number of miles you drive, whether you park a car in a garage or outside. The one I think we want to focus on today, though, is homeowners. If you have a house and if you have a mortgage, the mortgage company will require you to have homeowners insurance. Turns out there is no law, no law, state or federal, that says you have to have homeowners insurance. If you own your home free and clear, you're perfectly capable of not insuring it, not spending a penny on it. What doesn't a typical homeowner's policy cover? Your standard homeowner's policy will not cover an earthquake. That matters to you and I because of where we live. Maybe not so much to people who live in Nebraska. It's pretty picky about how it covers water damage. There are only a few things that are in the standard policy for that. Same with mudslides and floods and surprisingly things like termites and rodent and bird damage. Now you can buy additional specific policies for all of those things, but you're going to pay extra for it. But it is important to note that those sorts of risks are specifically not covered. And I think it's because although they're probably uncommon, they're, they're usually very expensive. The events that are happening in the world today that seem to be worsening as the climate changes that are the most expensive for them, and those are, as you would expect, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes. Those are kind of the big three. They wreck a lot of stuff and cause a lot of insurance claims. Catastrophic stuff is usually what we see on the news. Most recently, we saw the, the Maui wildfires. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was yet another hurricane that roared through Florida. If you pay any attention to the news headlines, you see that hurricanes are getting more frequent and stronger. Wildfires are getting more frequent and bigger, deadlier. So there's a lot of loss of life, certainly a lot of loss of property. That's all associated with it. I want to know, Glenn, is there anything you want to toss in here about this? Yeah, I think that's the way most of us experience the insurance industry is, as you mentioned, it's sort of this required thing that you must get almost like a tax is the way I view it. If you want a mortgage, you have to have homeowner's insurance. If you want a car with a loan, you must have car insurance. And then when you go in and experience that sales process, it's a, a FUD, and that is fear, uncertainty, doubt. Do you want the extra insurance to cover flooding that might also occur? Do you want the earthquake insurance? Do you want all of these other things? And so there's an element of being forced or required into paying for something you probably won't ever use. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it for sure. And it is worth noting that car insurance is not required just because you have a loan. Car insurance is required in 48 states. You, you must have it, period. It's New Hampshire and Virginia don't have any regulation for having automobile insurance. I don't know how they deal with the associated problems of people crashing into each other, but for what it's worth. So in that sense, it does sort of fall into that tax category, as you mentioned. If you're going to drive a car, you got to have insurance. If you own a home and have a mortgage, you're going to have insurance. It's something that you can live without in certain circumstances. The question is, do you really want to? So remember the first thing I said, insurance is risk mitigation. It's just trying to cover a worst case scenario. Whether or not we determine that the government should be the driver of this, I think let's try to get to that point in this conversation. But there's a lot of information we want to look at before we try and make that statement because there are varying degrees of government involvement already. That could be the ultimate answer, but let's, let's look at some numbers and see what kind of conclusions we come to as a result of that. But in the last 20 years, annual losses 
In other words, claims paid to insurance companies have ranged from a low of $30 billion to a high of $159 billion. That's a lot of billions. In order to cover that and in order to stay in business, the implication is that if you're an insurance company, your claims have to be exceeded by the monthly premiums that people are paying you or you're not going to stay in business. And it is a for-profit business. We have to remember that. So it doesn't make sense to try to come to some sort of net zero level where you're only paying as much for insurance as they have to pay out. There's no point in being in a business if you're not making money. So there has to be profitability. The other interesting thing is in that same period of time, I looked at the 10 costliest events that have taken place in that period of time. Number one, as you might expect, was Hurricane Katrina. $90 billion for that one thing. Here's another interesting point. The 10 costliest natural disasters in the United States in history, nine of them are hurricanes. One of them was the North Ridge earthquake in California. So I think mostly what we're looking at historically has been hurricanes. That's probably going to continue. And that's because they're they're so enormous. They're widespread. They do a lot of damage from direct wind damage. They spawn associated tornadoes. But mostly it's that storm surge and flooding that just wipes things out. The recent fire in Lahaina, just for comparison, which destroyed, I think, close to 3,000 homes. The number kind of varies between 2,700 and 3,000. That in itself says something about this tragedy. They don't even really know. They're looking at tax records and photos of, of the town and trying to count, but 3,000 homes. The estimation is initially they figured it was going to be three point some number of billions. And the latest information almost doubles that. This could be a $6 billion disaster. There's no conceivable way that even 3,000 homes paying property and casualty insurance is going to sum up to somewhere between 3 and $6 billion. So that's going to be a big loss for the insurance company. As you mentioned before, the number one insurer in Hawaii is State Farm. That's one of the four that has recently vacated California. Of note, up until this happened, the lowest homeowner insurance rates in the United States were in Hawaii. I have a mm-hmm. feeling that may change as a result of this. That, for some reason, I didn't expect. And when you look at the state by state of, of how these things work, that was a bit of a surprise. But remember that homeowner rates, the amount that you as a homeowner have to pay, are based on this mountain of data that the insurance companies have collected, much of which is location-centric. Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, has an interesting website that's worth a visit, and they have maps of the United States, and they have risk values associated with every county in the U.S. for every imaginable disaster, wildfire, flood, hurricane, tornado, earthquake, ice storms, you name it, it's all out there. So when you go through and look at that, you can immediately see that there are certain areas of the U.S. that are more vulnerable to some of these disasters, obviously the hurricanes. It's mostly in the Southeast, Florida and the Gulf Coast, uh, Georgia, South Carolina. But that risk extends as far inland as Tennessee and Missouri because of the heavy rains that are associated with it. So that's going to affect both the cost of insurance to the homeowner and the cost of insurance claim payouts to the insurance business in all of those areas. So they're monitoring this at a very micro level based on all of these things. Interestingly, there's also a volcanic risk assessment in there. Pretty much the only thing places that show up on that are your house. So the rest of the U.S. seems pretty safe. Yeah, that website is really interesting to browse. If you go to Google and search for FEMA NRI, that is F-E-M-A space NRI, it'll quickly take you 
to their national risk index. And you can go to the map and zoom in on any county in the nation. And I did quickly realize that my risk score for volcanic activity is a perfect score of 100. I did check my homeowner's policy, however, and I am covered for volcanic activity. Apparently, it's considered such a rare event. They do normally cover it. So I'll have that satisfaction if I am somehow entombed in a lava flow from Mount Rainier. <laughs> in 2022, last year, this is the second year in a row that the insurance business has posted losses in excess of $100 billion. These are numbers that are almost incomprehensible unless you're in the government. By losses, you mean payouts, not their payouts. net income. Okay. So insurance business is a two-way street. There's the money that we give them. There's the money that they give us. When they're shipping out the door $100 billion, that's a big deal. And that's every insurance company in every county of every state for every imaginable thing. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with things that are covered because of these disasters. But it also has, you have a kitchen fire or a tree falls on your house, any number of those things. All those numbers go into that, but they're big numbers. What's particularly notable is the fact that when you look at graphs over the past few years, every year it's somewhere between 5 and 7% more than it was the year before. It is almost universally come into play because of the catastrophic event. It's not mm. those small individual events at the homeowner's house, the, the, the kitchen fire that I just mentioned. It's the big events. They're getting bigger. They're getting worse. And they're getting more expensive. One of the reasons they're getting more expensive is property values are going up. If you just think back five years ago to what your house was worth, if it burned to the ground, as opposed to what it's worth today, if it burned to the ground, that's a big difference. So your rates have increased during that period of time by some amount. We don't know for sure what that is. And here we have to throw in another wrinkle. And that is, it's clear to me that the cost of being an insurer is going up because the cost of claims is going up. The cost of claims is going up both because of the number of events that are happening, but also because the value of property goes up. The value of lumber has gone up. The cost of labor has gone up. Everything associated with those insurance claims is more expensive now than it was five, 10 years ago. That's just a fact of life. Danny, we should also remember that every year the insurance companies are raising their rates. And I think what you're saying is that the payouts are increasing faster than their rates. That's a true statement. And let's talk about why. It's going to get more expensive for an insurance company to pay your claim for all the reasons we just detailed. But every state, all 50 states, have some sort of government insurance commission that is an intervention to raising rates. This is in order for the state to prevent insurance companies from gouging us, just randomly saying, okay, rates are going up 50%. Exactly. So every state in the U.S. has its own regulatory policies. They're all a little different, but intention of all of them is the same. And that is, I've got an insurance commissioner that I think actually shows up on the ballot. It seems like sometimes we get asked to vote for this. I have no idea what it is. And you just sort of randomly pick a name. But the insurance commissioner's responsibility is to prevent insurance companies from gouging us, the consumer, with inappropriate amounts of rate increases. Mm -hmm. So let's look at that for a little bit and consider the effect that that has. California is the best place for us to start. California has an insurance regulatory body of laws that is 85 years old. So it's been on the books for a long time. Obviously, there have been a few changes along the way, but not much. The single most important thing to the insurance company is that 
if you are insuring people's property in California and you find that you're not making money and you come to the obvious conclusion, this is a dumb idea. I'm in business to make money. And the way you solve that is I have to increase my rates. I have to have more money coming in than I am paying out or I will go out of business. California has laws that essentially preclude that from happening. It's specific to California. They have, for some reason, this one particular complication, but it's something that's in effect everywhere. Every state, to some degree, has this kind of restriction. I think the intention is right, but California serves as a good example, both because they're the ones that are seeing this immediate impact, but they've got this one unique thing in their insurance rules called the efficient proximate cause rule that forces insurers to cover not only the cost of the fire itself, so your house burns to the ground, but they also have to fork over money for post-fire disasters like flooding, mudslides. I mean, we see this on the news all the time. So that's an example of that one state of why it's a little bit more of an event there. When the town of Paradise burned down a few years ago and 25,000 homes were lost, it absolutely destroyed the community. It destroyed virtually every tree around there. Any place that was a hillside was denuded of all vegetation. The fall rains came. There were mudslides that further damaged things. So the insurer of that home is on the hook not only for the loss of the house itself at the time of the fire, but for everything that happens afterward. So they're probably the most egregious example of why this is a problem. But if you are the insurer and you're looking at doing business there and you realize, man, I I just paid out $500,000 for this house and now I'm going to be on the hook for an unknown number of dollars for the next few years because of flooding and mudslides and toxic contamination and all sorts of other things. Now, California's the most extreme example of that particular thing. But it makes the point that this is all regulated by the state. In my state, in Oregon, if you're an insurance company and you're having a problem covering your losses because we've had some enormous devastating wildfires in the past few years, you have to go to this insurance commissioner and say, I need to raise my rates. So there's a big legislative process that takes place, a lot of meetings. Maybe you're granted the ability to do that and maybe not. That's an impediment for all of us. And that's one of the principal drivers behind why these companies are no longer issuing policies, particularly in California. The other end of the country, in Florida, we've got a slightly different problem. Florida, obviously, it's not so much wildfires as hurricanes, but there's a unique event happening in Florida, also based on state regulation, that is causing a similar exodus of insurers. And that is Florida has 9% of all homeowner policies in the U.S., but they are responsible for 79% of all litigation toward insurance company. So if you're a homeowner and your house gets flattened by a hurricane and you don't like the results, you file a lawsuit. So the insurance companies are getting it in Florida. They're they're dealing with the expense of dealing with these lawsuits. And there are tens of thousands of these things where the homeowner says, you owe me an additional fill in the blank, X number of thousand dollars. From a business perspective, you can understand why both in Florida and California, these kind of add-on problems would lead them to say, it's just, it's not worth it. But then underlying that, is the sheer volume of expense that they're having to absorb. Florida because of the hurricanes, California mostly because of the wildfire. I hear what you're saying. I hear that there's increasing costs. Can't we also look at the financials of these companies? And when I do that, I see them, sure, they've lost a little bit of money here and there, but for the most part, 
they're still making money. If I look at AIG, I see that they've made $10 billion in the last couple of years. I see that they're paying their CEO very well. In fact, they gave a pay package to the AIG CEO of something like $150 million last year. Interestingly enough, the shareholders of AIG are attempting to pull back $50 million of that comp package. So are we really looking at corporations just being too greedy, wanting to make more and more money off of this required service? I have to think about that. For one thing, $150 million is an inconsequential drop in the bucket with some of the numbers we're talking about. Hmm. So even if they didn't pay that guy a nickel, that's still not going to make up for the losses. I think if you look at this purely from a pragmatic perspective, I am a business, a for-profit business. I have a bottom line. I have shareholders and I have expectations of profit. This applies whether it's a car maker or a food manufacturer or an oil company or an insurance company. Companies do go out of business all the time because they're not making a profit, not enough coming in to cover the expenses. So I'm not saying that insurance companies are these holier than, than us kinds of organizations that are only in it for the benefit of the insured, but they provide a service that we pay for and they have a reasonable expectation of making money, whatever their tolerance is for that. There are a lot of regulations around insurance that would prevent them from simply walking away short of declaring bankruptcy, but there are also regulations in place that ensure that an insurance company has the capital assets to cover the risk that they have assumed. So if you're an insurance company that has $10 billion worth of potential claims, you better have access to $10 billion or you're going to have problems with the state. This also brings up a topic of reinsurance, and that is that insurance companies buy insurance. There's a second tier of insurance companies out there that specialize in writing insurance for insurance companies. I told you, you could insure anything, right? Well, this is just another category of that. It's all about the bottom line. This is one of those areas it's going to be difficult to get into because if you get the government involved in trying to regulate costs, we've had experience in, in my lifetime. I remember the government trying to freeze the cost of goods so that a loaf of bread was always however much it was going to be. It never seems to work out because we are this free enterprise capitalist country. So you're going to sell something for as much as you can sell it for, not less. Not less because you're a good guy, but as much as you can sell it for to maximize your profit. It's no different with insurance companies. We probably react differently to it because it's something you're forced to have. So maybe we all tend to feel like it's not fair that I have to pay $2,000 a year to insure my house, but I have to do it. It's required. I don't like it. But I think that one has to be somewhat pragmatic that you can't be a business and stay in business if you're not making money. If there's a big giant earthquake off the west coast of the U.S. and the western half of Oregon and Washington are basically destroyed, there's going to be tens of thousands of homes, thousands of miles of roadway, hundreds, maybe thousands of bridges, lots of public infrastructure, just losses that we can't even comprehend. It's all insured somewhere. It's insured by multiple companies at sort of that consumer level. Even if it's a state agency, they have insurance on all their stuff. And then the insurance companies are going to have reinsurers by law to cover all of the capital costs that they have exposure to. It's this kind of stack of dominoes that if they all fall, the money still has to be there. Like I said, it's risk mitigation. So it's a data-driven best guess, in many cases, numbers game. I think we should come back to that question. What does it mean to an area when insurance companies stop writing 
policies. What does it mean to homeowners? What does it mean to future homeowners and the real estate market? Not good. <laughs> That's for sure. This is already happening in, in a few states. Most notably, Louisiana suffered Hurricane Katrina and a string of hurricanes since then. And they were flooded with insurance companies that went bankrupt because they couldn't cover all the claims. Reinsurance co companies that went bankrupt because they couldn't cover. Uh, it was this dramatic tragedy. The state of Louisiana and now the state of Florida and the state of Texas have instituted these insurance policies that are kind of referred to as last resort insurance. So the state itself provides expensive homeowners policies in those places where you can't get it. California will be next. Uh, I don't think at this point they have that available, but I, I should also interject here. There are specific companies that sell what's termed high risk insurance. This kind of falls into the same category as earthquake insurance. So I had a house when I lived in Seattle and I bought earthquake insurance on it. So my homeowner's policy was, I don't know, $1,600 a year. And I insured it for earthquake damage at the same level, whatever the value of the house was. And it cost me an additional, I think, $600 a year for that. But it had a $20,000 deductible. So those high-risk policies are available, but they're expensive and they don't cover you the same way a standard homeowner's policy with a $1,000 or $500 deductible does. So that's there. But in Louisiana, Florida, and Texas, you as a homeowner may find yourself in a position where your state farm policy, yeah, we're not renewing it. Or you buy a house and you find that the only insurance you can get on that is this last resort stuff. It's not going to be $1,600 a year. It's probably going to be three or four or five times that. But I also want to say this. At the point right now, I, I will give you the example. My house in Bend is insured for $566,000. And that is the magic formula that Allstate uses for how much it would cost to rebuild this structure. I paid $2,100 a year for that. It's gone up every year I've lived here a little bit, maybe 100 bucks a year, maybe 150 What I see on the horizon is I'll be paying two or three times that in a few years because I'm in a high-risk zone for wildfire. So as the insurance companies continue to collect data, and come up with these models that say there is a fill-in-the-blank percent chance that the city of Bend is going to burn to the ground. Therefore, we need to cover our expected losses in this town by raising rates. So they got to go through the hoops with the government. They got to plead their case. They got to provide the information. The government has to agree. The state government has to agree. But the rates are going to go up, guaranteed. And I don't think this is necessarily because the insurance companies are bad guys. I think that they realize that they have to have enough capital to cover the loss of my house if it burns. I want them to cover the cost of my house if it burns. If those two things coalesce, I have to pay them what they demand or they simply won't insure it. There's no law that says an insurance company has to provide you insurance. They don't. Could you rebuild your house for $566,000? I've talked to the insurance people. They have not only the agents, but you can actually talk to their claims department and they've got people that are pretty well versed in this. I had a conversation last year and they said, we have a formula that we use and it's based on a number of things. It's based obviously on your house. So they know quite a bit about my house, when it was built, what it was made out of, what kind of roof it has, does it have decks, what kind of interior finishes, it all that's. And then they have these across the board formulas for the cost of materials right now today. How much is lumber? How much is the tile for the floor? How much are the bathroom fixtures? And in your town, what does it cost for labor to get all these various things done? They do the math and then they say, 
this is what it would cost to rebuild your house. So I've got like 2,400 square feet, and they're saying it would be basically two, 220, 25 bucks a square foot to rebuild it. I don't know if that's possible or not. I have the option of saying, mm-hmm. I want to increase that. I want to increase it to 600 or 700 or whatever, mm-hmm. as long as I don't get completely out of the ballpark and ask for two times what it's worth. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So you as the customer have the option of increasing the payout that you would receive in the event of a catastrophe, but they will charge you. for that. They're not going to sell that to me for the same $2,100 a month I pay right now. Oregon, a couple of years ago, the state legislature passed Senate Bill 763, which was a very controversial bill that said, we are going to provide a property by property wildfire risk assessment for every place in the state. So they created a map that was detailed down to the lot, and it assigned a risk of none, low, moderate, high, extremely high, based on a bunch of factors that they threw into it. As soon as they released that, which was in May of 2022, there was a popular uprising across the state of people who said, "Ah, no, no way. So it's now back in the hopper being reworked. But that's going to arrive at some point. And what that's going to do is it's going to provide the insurance company with ammunition to say, hey, look, you live in a high risk zone. We're not charging you enough for your insurance. So it's going to go up. That's a fact. Fact of life. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect me. Same sort of thing is going to happen eventually to all those properties in Florida and Louisiana that are hurricane prone. So they will determine for each individual property, what's the likelihood you're going to be flooded? Well, here's how much your insurance is going to, because the insurance companies are looking for those kinds of details. They're pretty good right now in the hurricane zone. They're pretty good in tornadoes. Wildfire is still a bit of a new concept to a lot of insurance companies they are learning as they go, because just in the last five years, we've got all these utter catastrophes. Lahaina, Paradise. I mean, Western Oregon, three years ago, we had two of the biggest fires in the history of the state burn 6,000 homes. Well, that's all information the insurance companies are going to use as they calculate what their risk is. By the way, those were in low-risk areas, and yet these giant wildfires took all these homes, killed a bunch of people. It's bad stuff. That's just the way it is. So what can we do? What steps can be taken to mitigate this? I think some of them are happening already. And that is that state regulations have to allow rate increases in these vulnerable states. So the whole deal in California where you're putting all of the load on the insurance companies and they're saying, okay, fine, we're just not going to play here if that's the way you're going to insist on it. You can complain all you want about that. You can point out that that's unfair and unreasonable. But bottom line is if you're not making money and you're all state, you're going to leave. You're just not going to do it anymore. And regardless of what your level of profit is, you will get to a point where you say, it's not worth doing business here. We're out. So we as consumers have to accept the fact that this is going to be an expense that we got to deal with. The other thing that may happen is the feds may look at this. There was just recently a Senate hearing just within the last few weeks to talk about this very thing. And senators are probably the least knowledgeable people on the planet of all of this. So if we're counting on them to come up with some sort of magic solution, I would say just look at all the other stuff they haven't done. But the point is, it has reached that level. It's at at the point where the federal government is now aware that there are problems, the thing that we're talking about, and they're making noise about it. I don't think they're going to come up with a solution for it. There's another thing that's called, the acronym is FAIR, F-A-I-R. I can't remember what that stands for, but a number of states have adopted these FAIR plan insurance programs. 
again, it's a taxpayer subsidized thing, just like I pointed to in Louisiana and Texas and Florida, the insurance of last resort. But 32 states now have fair insurance policies available for those people that are in uh, vulnerable areas. That's happening at the state level where I think you're more likely to see actual progress because there's not quite the same kind of partisan bickering that's going to take place at the U.S. Senate. So I think things are happening. I think that the awareness is it, it's hard to turn on the news and not see some notable climate-related disaster. They're bigger and badder and worse and getting worse all the time. If you had to guess which state has the most expensive insurance, which state would you guess? I would expect Florida and California to be the most expensive for all the reasons that we know. They're in the news with natural disasters all the time. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> hmm. I was surprised at this too. The most expensive homeowner's insurance in the United States today is in Oklahoma, hmm. followed by Kansas, followed by Nebraska, followed by Arkansas. Now, why would you think that is? Oh, Tornado Alley. I, I was not prepared for that either. I, it just never occurred to me. But the damage that has taken place in terms of homeowner losses in those states due to tornadoes is something that's very quantifiable. The average homeowner's policy in Oklahoma, and I'll remind you that house prices in Oklahoma are nowhere near as expensive as in California. Average Oklahoma homeowner pays $5,317 for homeowner's insurance. That's more than two and a half times what I pay. The least expensive states, the least, are Hawaii. We talked about that earlier. That same coverage, $582, almost a tenth of what it costs in Oklahoma. The second least expensive state, California. California's laws, that 85-year-old insurance program that they have, is part of the reason that they're so low. It's also the reason that insurance companies are saying this doesn't make financial sense for us to be here. So is this a regulation problem? Are we driving out with all of these laws that limit rate increases? Is this what's at the core of California's issue? I believe it is. Mm. It's very clear there's an enormous risk in many parts of California. The FEMA map shows Southern California as extreme risk for wildfire. Well, that's no surprise, is it? Because that's where they happen. California has the second largest wildland firefighting force in the world, mm. right behind the U.S. Forest Service, BLM Park Service. Well, there's a reason for that. The place burns. But if you as an insurer are getting one-fifth of the money per house that you're getting in Oklahoma, pretty quick, you're going to decide this doesn't make fiscal sense. The solution there probably is rates have to go up and the state has to make changes in their regulations to allow that to happen. They probably need to get rid of that additional law that says not only are you paying for the fire damage, but you're paying for everything that comes after that. That needs to change, whether it will or not. That's another question. I think when you talk about what, what needs to be done, it's, it's changes in the regulations that are preventing insurance companies from operating a profitable business in these areas that we see most affected by climate change-driven disasters. And it's California and the Gulf Coast and Florida. It's just the facts of life. State regulations, particularly in those states, need to be modified to allow insurance companies to remain profitable businesses. And unfortunately, the residents of those states are going to have to pony up more money. There's no other way around it. If you live in a house on a concrete slab 100 feet from the beach in Florida in a hurricane, your house is going away. So if you are going to insure it, you're going to have to pay enough that the insurance company can absorb that loss. On the surface, it's pretty simple, quite honestly. The very first statement I made that insurance is just a risk mitigation strategy. So mitigation, let's talk about 
mitigation in other ways. There are things that you can do to minimize the danger to your individual house. And this actually applies to all of the big time disasters, wildfire, hurricanes, earthquake, and tornadoes. The term they like to use is resilience. So you can make your home more resilient. I've been involved in a a lot of programs here in Central Oregon having to do with wildfire because that's our big event. So I have done a number of risk mitigation reviews of homes in the town of Bend in which I visit with the homeowner and we walk around and look at the property and point to things that the homeowner can do, many of which are free or cheap, that will reduce the danger of that house burning down in a worst case scenario. There are much more expensive things you can do to protect yourself from hurricanes and earthquake and tornadoes. They all have to do with structural changes. So they're not inexpensive and and easy and do-it-yourself kinds of things like with wildfire. Some of the new homes that are being built in the Gulf Coast are being built to very rigid structural standards. They're being built on piers so that if you get a storm surge, the water simply goes under your house. I had a house plan on a piece of property I had in central Washington on a river that was prone to flooding, and the county required me to build what they referred to as a flow-through foundation. So instead of a square block of cement, it was these cement piers that basically pointed upstream so that in the event of a flood, the water would flow between those. Made perfect sense to me. But that's a mitigation that you could endure a flood, a damaging 500-year event, and your house will still survive because it sits on top of these All the bad water flows right underneath the house. It doesn't knock the house off the foundation and wash it downstream. There's never a simple answer to these things that we like to talk about, Glenn. This is just another one of those 15 ways of being complex. Danny, can I bring up one final question? And that is, at what level does a insurance company need to be profitable? If you think about the risk mitigation gain and an area let's say a state, you got lots of people paying a monthly premium for their insurance. And at some point, some fraction are going to have huge claims, hurricane, flood, fire, whatever it is. Are we saying that the state is the right level at which to balance that premiums from everybody payouts to a small percentage? And over what period of time is it okay for a insurance company to manage that? I think it's okay for an insurance company to lose money for a couple of years in a row, and then they make wildly huge profits in years where maybe there's few natural disasters. Is it the state? Is it the neighborhood? Because you could get down to a place where you could say, Danny, that house on that river, I need you to pay $10,000 a year on insurance because we think every 10 years, you're going to have a $100,000 claim. And that's the only way we can make money. Or is it that neighborhood? Everybody's going to pay 5,000 a month so that when Denny has a claim that we can cover it. Well, I think both. Hmm. And to, to address what you bring up, good point. I'll point back to that thing called the fair plan. The way that works is sort of the opposite of what you just described. So that is a state-run operation. And the way it works is if I if I was eligible for a fair plan for homeowners insurance here, I could get the same coverage level. It might cost a different amount. I'm sure it would cost a different amount. But the way it works is it's not a single insurer. So I don't have a policy with Allstate. I have a policy with 10 different insurance companies, each of whom assumes a part of the risk. The insurance company benefits from fair plan policies because they minimize their individual exposure 
on a single property. And they share that exposure across multiple companies. So all they're really doing is lowering the amount of money they're on the hook for. But it enables the homeowner to have insurance. As I said, there are 32 states that currently have those plans in effect. And I think they're because of the very reasons that we're talking. So it's a way to spread that risk. It's not unlike, again, using my favorite poor subject, Allstate buys an insurance policy on me, and then they buy an insurance policy for themselves from a reinsurer. So they've spread the risk not only across their assets, but to another company. And that second tier, the reinsurer level, does the same thing. They spread their risk across all properties in the U.S., some of which will be nothing but pure income, some of which will be utter losses. So the trick is always about balancing. The game that we're talking about here, whether it's done at the state level, at the neighborhood level, at the insurer level, the federal level, always comes back to the same thing. And that is you have to spread your risk across enough properties that somebody's going to be paying you money that you don't lose in a greater amount than you are paying out. Again, I'll say it, data-driven. That's what defines how all of this works. The insurance companies are data-driven to an intensive level. They understand how much it costs them to do business. And they have figured out a formula that says we need to charge more than we're paying out in order to make money. Those specific numbers are up to the individual carrier, the individual neighborhoods that they're working in. So you get the big national firms and they've got properties in, I don't know, Wyoming that they're never going to get a claim on. And then they've got properties in Gulfport that they're always going to get claims on. But it balances out at some point through the magic of their data analysis. Your questions earlier, I think, are harder to quantify. And that is, how much money should an insurance company make? I don't know how in, in our culture you say you can only make $100 million a year. I, I just I don't see that that's something we can ever regulate. If you're insanely successful, it means you've done a bunch of things, right? If you lose your money and you go out of business 24 months after you start, you've obviously made some mistakes. That's the way it works in every business. Insurance is no different. It's a complex issue and it requires most likely the loosening of regulations combined with a data-driven approach to thinking through that risk mitigation, which could be as simple as doing the sorts of things that only a government can do, which is, hey, we need to think about reducing the risk of wildfires, or we need to think about building codes that require folks to build homes that are more able to withstand these climate events that are becoming more frequent and more severe to reduce the impact of these natural disasters. You're onto something here. And I think that the idea that building codes and safety standards can be adopted at community levels or state levels, I think that's the right choice. I think there's some other things that we need to consider, and that is in terms of making smarter land use choices. I mean, we already know that there are certain places that are high risk. If you're on the beach in Southern Florida, that's high risk. So perhaps the way government intervenes is saying you can't build homes. Right. If you're next to a river that floods every three years, maybe the state says you can't build homes. And that makes a big difference. Then I think that there's also something about when you buy a piece of property. I mentioned that I've been doing these risk mitigation reviews for people, and I've I've talked to a number of homeowners who have seen their insurance rates in this town go up dramatically, 25, 30, 50%. But it's also talked to some people that have ended up buying homes in my neighborhood because they were trying to build a home outside of town and they discovered they couldn't get insurance at all because of where they were. They're too far away from a fire hydrant. They're surrounded by dry woodlands, that sort of thing. 
That's happening already. So hmm. people are running into these problems. And one of the things that could be done that would sort of help is you you need to figure out a way to price the risk into a home purchase. So if you're looking to buy a house, there are things that are happening in Oregon now where if somebody decides that I want to sell my house and there is information that has to be provided to the potential buyer about how much it costs to heat the place, how much water I use, all of that stuff that's now being enacted into laws in the state of Oregon so that the purchaser comes into this knowing what it's going to cost them to live here. We don't have anything on the books yet that says you need to also tell them, yeah, it may burn to the ground and here's why. And here's the risk associated with that. And here's how much it's going to cost you for insurance to mitigate that. None of that's in place yet. And I think that there could be some steps taken that way. There's, as I said, the insurance company is super data driven. So there's tons of historic claim data that you could provide to a potential buyer. I mean, all of this is stuff you would do up front so that it might not be a good thing for me if people find out I'm living in a wildfire risk zone, but certainly for the purchaser, they wouldn't be coming in and simply perpetuating that problem. Building new homes, it's the same one. If I'm going to buy a piece of land, one of the things that should be disclosed to me, well, you can build a house here, but you can't get insurance because no insurance company in North America will write a policy for this house and here's why. The other thing is that there are steps that can be taken in the construction of new homes. You alluded to this that make an enormous difference. We've got new communities in my town now that are required to adhere to policies regarding vegetation, what you can and cannot do, the zone that you have to have around your new structure that is defensible, defensible space requirements. So that's happening and that's going to help as well. So that if I build a new house, but there's nothing within five feet that will burn because it's surrounded by these decorative rocks, that's a big deal. You can build houses without gutters here. So you're not going to collect a bunch of pine needles in there that would start a fire on the roof. You can build houses with vent systems or no vent system that prevent embers from getting inside the house. That burns a lot of places to the ground. There's a lot of stuff we can do. And most of it is sort of forward looking. It doesn't help any of the existing structures. It's something that over time will provide, I think, a safer environment. And you can do the same thing, as I said, in flood-prone areas, in hurricane-prone areas, in tornadic-prone areas, all the same sorts of logic will apply to those places. We're talking about the federal government and can they get involved. There are actually things that, that they could do on a national level, and they're pretty dramatic and they'd be insanely expensive, but it's still something to talk about. And that is, maybe you go to southern Louisiana and you buy all these properties that you know are going to get washed away and relocate those residents inland to avoid that. So you sort of proactively take the hit that the insurance companies are going to take. This also addresses the human cost of this. We haven't even alluded to that at all. We're talking simply dollars and structures. But if your house burns down, that's a horrific event, an upheaval that you're going to be dealing with for a year or two while you try and figure out what comes next. So there's the time involved in the claims process. It's a major disaster like in Lahaina. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to live? So you're waiting six or nine months for the insurance money to come through. But in the meantime, what are you going to do? And not only has your home burned to the ground, but your business is burned down. So you got no income. Much of that is covered by insurance as well, depending on, on what you've got insured. Expensive things with huge, enormous costs, both in just dollars and cents and loss of property. But the impact that it has on the people that go through these disasters is incredible.
Danny, one thing is clear, climate change is driving a lot of changes, and there has to be a careful, nuanced approach to regulations, to how we interact with insurance companies, to how we interact with building codes at all levels of government. And I wonder, do you think we're headed in the right direction? Do you think that's starting to happen? I do. And I think the reason that's the case is it's about money. So money is the great mm. motivator, right? <laughs> if there's a way to make more money or save money or prevent losing money, there's going to be an emphasis paid to it. This is not so much a, a social question of, is this the right thing to do? Is this the way to treat people? It's ooh, dollars and cents. So I think that there is a big push, both on the part of the insurance companies, on all the, the government levels from local to state to federal to address this. And we can all pretend like the climate is not changing and impacting us that we want. But man, if you turn on the news, there's going to be something else that happens this week that will fall under the same category. It's bigger, it's stronger, it's worse than what we've experienced in the past. It's not getting better. We need to react. Well, this is a developing story. It'll be interesting to see how this shakes out over the coming few years. Denny, thank you as always. Fascinating discussion. Appreciate your perspective. Happy to do it. This is intriguing stuff to me, so we'll keep an eye on it. There may be another podcast in the future.